Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. America's borrowing limit has been raised, setting the stage for another debt default drama in early December. Meanwhile, President Biden's ambitious agenda hangs in the balance as inflation rises, as the world reemerges from the COVID pandemic, at least for the time being. The United States Air Force's former software chief also resigned to protest the slow pace of Pentagon cybersecurity improvements and says China is ahead in both cyber and AI. Tensions continue to rise in the South China Sea as liberals gain ground in the Czech Republic. Israel makes an about face on the Iran nuclear deal. Lebanon descends into chaos. Then Washington is talking to the Taliban and the administration has released ambitious climate plans for each uh, government department. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who is the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Steve Grunman of the Atlantic Council Think Tank and the Grunman Advisory Consultancy, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Everybody, thanks very much for uh, joining us. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA sponsored our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting uh, this week in Washington, D.C. And check out our Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep dive into naval issues uh, this week interviewing naval strategist, Dr. Uh, Jerry Hendricks. Um, everybody, thanks very much again uh, for joining us. Dove, uh, start us off. Michael can't join us this week. Uh, Congress passed and the president signed a borrowing uh, limit extension. Uh, we discussed that that was going to happen last week. Uh, we heard from Army uh, Secretary Christine Wormuth uh, at AUSA saying more tough choices uh, lie ahead. Obviously, the administration going to keep the budget uh, flat force people to live within that budget. But if we get some more money, as we've discussed on the program from Congress, uh, all the better, $25 billion plus up this year, making its way uh, through the process. Give us an update on where we stand, uh, because there hasn't been a lot of news, but there's been, there is, right, this is a little bit like, as you know, as we were preparing for this, Steve said, uh, the quietude suggests that there is a lot of activity under the duck uh, that we may, might not be seeing. Give us, give us a peek under the duck, if you will. Well, I, I can't do it anywhere as well as Mike can, but I'll try to do my best. Um, I think the big story that's kicking around the Hill right now, at least on the Senate side, is that Manchin, he's not going to stick with 1.5. He's prepared to move up. And the number that's been in the press in the region of 2.1 trillion or 2.2 trillion is where, where it looks like it might go in the Senate. The problem's really in the House, and, and it's a twofold problem for Nancy Pelosi. First is, she's, you know, she's already postponed the infrastructure vote uh, at least once, really twice, and, and now it's supposed to be at the end of October, which is two weeks away. Uh, there's no indication that uh, her progressive uh, wing of her, of, of her caucus is ready to move on that. So that might mean another postponement. Each time they postpone, they hurt their own credibility. More important even than that is, can she get an agreement around, the time, around uh, December 3rd, give or take, which happens to be when they have to once again deal with the debt increase, 
uh, when they when the current resolution has to be revisited again, will there be some agreement in her caucus? Uh, and if there isn't, then no matter what the Senate side agrees on, <laughs> they're not going anywhere. And we're moving ever closer to the 22 election. And the Democrats seem to be getting much more panicky because they know very well that if they don't deliver anything at all, um, they could lose not just the House, but the Senate as well. Uh, and so that's probably the biggest story. Now, you mentioned the 24, 25 billion. Of course, that has to get through the appropriators. It may be a lower number. But even if it's that number, the real question is, how does the Biden administration then build its next budget? Does it simply say, OK, you gave us 25 billion, but we're still going with flat growth and uh, we're not going to add anything more than we already added? Or do they say, well, yeah, we, we get the message from Congress. Um, we're going to add it ourselves. And the reason they might do that is when Congress adds the money, then that's not in their uh, program of record. And they've got to start making all kinds of adjustments and you know, spending in, in a coherent way. Um, and that's assuming that the concurrent resolution actually is resolved and they, and they get a new budget. If Congress adds the money on and they haven't planned for it, then it gets a little bit chaotic. But we just don't know which way they're going to go on that. Um, and so that is, is a major question. Uh, you mentioned, of course, the climate. And uh, there again, how much is climate going to take out of all of this? Uh, they've also put money into uh, pandemics. How much is it going to take out of all this in 23, 24? Uh, and there's the constant real growth, both in uh, personnel, which, by the way, should includes in a different appropriation count, namely family housing, that's also for personnel, as well as O&M. Now, there's one other issue here, and that is inflation. The uh, administration assumed that inflation would be something slightly under 2%. And the numbers that they put out, with the exception of, of uh, procurement, had roughly 2.1, give or take, percent growth. Now, if the the economy continues to inflate at a four and a half to 5% rate, then the 22 budget is less than it was. The administration proposal could well be now a real decline. And even the 25 billion, however much is added, will also be worth less. And that just creates even more pressure on the baseline DOD budget. So there are a lot of loose pieces around here, uh, which have major implications for defense. And of course, if the Democrats are in disarray over the larger issue, that could backfire on defense as well. And I should say that the timing of this uh, document coincides with the COP26 conference in uh, Glasgow, uh, which where world leaders are supposed to sort of take um, uh, greenhouse gas reduction and uh, climate change in this, uh, initiatives to uh, a new uh, high. Um, Steve, let me bring you into the, the discussion. You know, you've been talking about, um, you know, uh, inflation and thinking about that. Uh, we heard from Ronan Horowitz as part of our coverage. Uh, he is the Elbit uh, Systems of America uh, chief executive, uh, one of the more uh, one of the most thoughtful executives in this industry uh, and certainly an articulate spokesman. And he discussed both uh, human um, you know, the cost of labor going up as well as the cost of materials going up and something that, that uh, he's, he's tracking. Uh, from, from your perspective, how much of this is 
manufactured, uh, how much of this is not, right? Because there's a lot of nuance going on. There is a little bit of price gouging, as is the case for private industry at a time when its goods are in demand. Uh, at the same time, people have left the workforce. Uh, you know, to, to some, they're artificially staying out of the workforce because of, uh, you know, obviously get checks from the government. Um, on, the, on the other hand, you, you also have a readjustment on wages, just like you also have post-COVID demand, right? I mean, Things are starting to get back to normal as the as the virus recedes. Walk walk us through some of this dynamic and what it means, certainly on the national security side of things. Um, well, certainly the persistence at a rate above five percent annualized rate of above five percent uh, of of inflation. The persistence of that that was announced this week, um, at least for me and I think for others, uh, uh, have has moved inflation from a we'll get through this to a watch item. Um, I, I think it, it was within this week as well, right, that the president of the IMF made a general uh, 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 issued a general call to central bankers to to themselves uh, put inflation uh, on uh, on a, on a watch item for themselves. Having said that, um, I generally, as as regards inflation, I I hew back to uh, write the benchmark ten year uh, T note, which is still sitting around one point five percent. Um, in fact, it, 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 it moved slightly downward after the announcement of the CPI, the con, uh, Consumer Price uh, Index rise. And that tells me that at least financial markets um, are, are sticking by the view, uh, the, the Federal Reserve's view, that this is still transitory, that we that this is not we're not in for, you know, we're not we're not up onto a plateau of annualized inflation rates above five percent. Um, and, and, and although one point five two uh, percent may may sound like a, a meaningful uh, important number. I, I also uh, am, am always reminded, particularly when people start associating inflation with federal spending, uh, uh, that in the year following uh, the Trump administration's tax cuts in the middle of 2018, just three years ago, that 10-year T-note uh, uh, yield was running at three and a quarter percent. So we have a long way to go before expectations of inflation start to torque. Um, financial markets, and then have more profound effects on, for example, investment of the kind that the likes of Renan Horowitz might be worried about. Vago, I would simply uh, say that I have no disagreement at all with what Steve said. But again, even if it's uh, a short-term thing, if, if it persists over next year, that eats into the, the defense budget. And if it persists over two years, it'll eat into the defense budget. So even if the 10-year forecast is what it is, um, if they can't control inflation over the next couple of years, it could have serious implications for the defense budget. No, that is exactly right. Let, let me just add to that. He, sure. uh, uh, right. There's only about 2% inflation cooked into the, uh, um, the fit up right now. So, so regardless, um, if, 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 the, if the expectation of inflation on which the 23, well, the 22 budget is, is executed, and, and I think for the moment, more importantly, the 23 budget is built, is anything above the level of inflation uh, dove, I think it's at two or 2.1% 2 in the green book, um, that's going to cost money. That's going to that's require um, either more top line than is in their fiscal guidance or um, it's going to require some trade-offs within, within the budget. My guess is this administration would like to keep defense spending out of the news for at least another 13 months. Um, and so they will at least uh, buy back what inflationary effects um, uh, would otherwise be imposed on the defense budget without imposing trade-offs on them. And, and I should point out, right, 
it's the sheer amount of reporting that's going into inflation. It, it you know, economic sentiment is driven by a whole bunch of very subtle, you know, as a student of the dismal science, Steve, uh, you know, it's dri- driven by a lot of subtle things. And if everybody is screaming about inflation, people tend to focus on it more. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, and, and, and about what your uh, confidence is in the economic future is also driven by a lot of these things. So the, the more everybody shouts about it and the more prominent voices are talking about it, the more people, uh, average people who, you know, uh, who are coping with uh, the implications of prices going up uh, are, are dealing with it. On the other hand, you know, you could say that we were also controlling prices actually remarkably well for a very long period of time on a, on a, on a relative uh, basis. Um Patrick, let me bring you into the conversation, right? I mean, China uh, each each week uh, added uh, concerns or heaped onto uh, economic concerns on on how the uh, China is doing. Um, and if you look at it, right, China was was oh, you know, the the rest of you guys, you uh, profligate uh, Americans and Europeans, you know, and you Americans in particular caused the economic crisis, the last big economic crisis, whereas actually there's concern that China may be playing a role, uh, not just in in stoking regional tensions, uh, certainly a big week uh, for that, but also potentially economic problems, right? Give us an update on the week. I've got a couple of China questions for you, but I want to start off with you sort of being like, uh, economically, what's the information that's coming out of Beijing that is also weighing a bit on on, on global markets uh, at a very critical time, especially given how important China is to the global economy? Well, there's significant downturn on uh, the real estate development in China, but they're still brimming with confidence. I mean, uh, you have to take seriously Xi Jinping's major speech this past week in which he mocked democracy. He said democracy is not just for decoration, but for solving problems, suggesting essentially that China is the real democracy and America is the dysfunctional democracy that cannot deliver. So that's why you go back to the budget discussion you've been having. Resources matter. Remember, Xi Jinping looked at the Obama administration, heard about a pivot, and didn't see the resources follow. Now he sees America locked between two parties who can't deliver, and he's basically saying, you're not going to be able to pony up the money for your resources, nor are you going to be able to get through your gridlock to do multilateral trade, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's where the Americans have to come up with some bold answers here. And I think, you know, I I defer to Dove on, on all things on budget, but nonetheless, I wonder whether at the end of the year... When we think about the major legislation that's impending, and we know it's not going to be passed at the amount, but one way to break through that amount is to uh, offer much more on defense to bring along the Republicans. Uh, and I think it's more than the $25 billion because it's that kind of resource level we're going to need not just to deal with the rising costs, but also to invest in continuing sea control capabilities, cyber and space capabilities, air power. If we don't control those domains, Uh, well enough against this rising China investment in a modern military, and by the way, also try to find the trade deals that go along with this and the economic investments. But if we don't do all of those things, we're going to lose further ground and we're going to be further mocked by China. 
Um, let me uh, ask uh, the broader question, right, which was uh, Nick Shalon's uh, comments. Uh, you know, a lot of frustration that DOD has not been moving the needle to address known uh, software and hardware vulnerabilities. Uh, you, you know, Michael Baer and Ron Moultrie years ago were writing for then Navy Secretary Richard Spencer noted how vulnerable our systems are and that it doesn't much matter how great our platforms are if they can somehow be uh, uh, knocked out of service uh, using cyber weapons, whether it's a B-21, whether it's a Zawalt-class destroyer or carrier or anything else. Um, is, do, you, do you think that his call, uh, his clarion call, his ringing of the alarm bell is going to change anything? Because when you talk to the cyber folks in the department, they lament, uh, as Chris uh, Cleary, the Navy's uh, principal cyber advisor, did a bit, that we tend to prioritize modernization ahead of uh, ad addressing some of these uh, cyber vulnerabilities. Dove, do you want to take a bite of this? I mean, is, is this something that's going to change? Yeah, because you talk to members and they talk about how important this is, but ultimately we like to buy one more littoral combat ship, a couple of more F-35s or F-18s we may no longer need, as opposed to actually safeguarding the force, which might take a billion dollars a year over five years, say five billion for each of the services. And yet that seems to be an, an, an afterthought. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, look, there are a couple of things that they're simply not doing. The first is um, they are not moving quickly enough on AI and quantum computing and, and uh, machine learning and, and all of that uh, because it's a bureaucracy. So that's number one. Number two is there's not reaching out anywhere near as, as much as they should to the commercial sector where they've been pushing ahead on all this stuff. 5G is a great example of that. Uh, and so uh, unless they open up their aperture, and I've got some ideas that I've been kicking around with folks on the Hill about how to uh, really get more serious about beefing up in particular DIU, the Defense Innovation Unit, uh, so that they could have more money in order to pursue on the commercial sector and bring stuff in. Um, also, one other area that, it, it, and this sounds like it's in the weeds, but it has huge implications. The, the Pentagon cannot move monies around in any account if it want, without four committees approval, unless it's less than $25 million. Now in a 700 plus billion dollar budget, to talk about 25 million as some kind of threshold is crazy but it makes it so much harder to pursue and expand and uh, basically accelerate what you're doing in these areas. If you've got to go to four committees because you want to spend $26 million. And so institutionally, congressionally, there's a whole host of reasons why uh, there's a problem and a very serious problem with uh, catching up much less overtaking the Chinese and by the way, the Russians. Um, Steve, um, you know, you've, uh, you know, right, I mean, at the Atlantic Council, you look at uh, defense industrial strategic uh, drivers and factors and how to accelerate the system and, and how to forge those closer uh, commercial uh, government. Um, uh, and I, I should I should point out right during the Clinton administration at the Pentagon, you were the uh, industrial uh, affairs guy, right? Because we had an aversion to calling it industrial policy, as we call it now, manufacturing industrial based policy is what Jesse Salazar is doing in the department. Right. What's, what's the right approach to be taking if we want to solve a problem like 
known software and hardware vulnerabilities and do it quickly? Well, there's there's certainly a, a technical answer to that question, uh, which which I won't go into. But you're asking me if the the industrial question is in the first instance, you need um, uh, common as it may sound, pedestrian as it may sound, a market analysis. Um, we need we need an understanding in the Pentagon. The Pentagon needs an understanding of the landscape of capabilities across the country, uh, uh, through in, in all of the of the economy's sectors, not just in those sectors that are addressing or trying to address defense. Um, which which, by the way, brings to mind one of the um, issues. I suppose I guess I'll I'll say or uh, I take with uh, Mr. Shion's. Uh, comparison. I, I, I do think when he calls out the Pentagon uh, for lagging behind China, um, he's kind of comparing it apples and oranges, uh, or at least it's not clear uh, uh, what he's comparing. Uh, I'd be interested in Patrick's view of whether my sense that when he thinks about China, given the centralized uh, nature, particularly in respect to cyber, of, of, of its economy, um, uh, comparing China's capabilities or investments in, in cyber AI and these other uh, fields that he laments our attention to, to, to the Pentagon's is kind of the wrong point of comparison, because uh, there's a lot more capability uh, around uh, the, the, the country, not to mention accessible to the Pentagon, than right. is per se being done by the Pentagon. Um, and I and I and I and I think so. So my answer to your question is let's let's figure out that that aggregate of capability so the Pentagon go, knows where to go find um, a resolution to the issues that it has once it's gotten the money and the uh, the focus that it is required to do that. The other thing I just want want to point out is um, Mr. Shion has has backed off um, on LinkedIn over the last couple of days. His uh, the headline that, that resulted from his uh, his interview with the Financial Times. He's now saying, oh, I'm not saying we're already lost. I'm simply saying that we're not on the right trajectory to win. So I, I think this story has an entirely different color to it if he because uh, uh, what he's now saying is tantamount to something the Secretary of Defense would say, um, as opposed to a real iconoclastic view. Um, I am uh, highly cognizant of time. I'm going to give a shout out to our other sponsors. Uh, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage and uh, L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain uh, command and uh, control. Um, let me uh, head back to you, uh, Patrick, because I do have a couple of China questions uh, before before we go over to Europe and Israel and Iran and uh, and the like. Uh, from a Chinese perspective, I mean, you never want to mirror image your potential adversary, right? On the other hand, the Chinese have a very, very focused national approach, uh, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's the quantum, right? I mean, they have strategies on all of these. The United States now, it's, it's uh, right? I mean, the White House has been talking about, um, you know, certainly has been looking at it and maybe having a more organized process in trying to do that. What are some things that we can learn from our Chinese adversary on how they're solving some of these very problems that could serve as a guide because the Chinese tend to be pretty logical about some of this stuff. Yes, it's an important question, uh, Vago. Um, I mean, I think Nick Shalian, by the way, was uh, trying to figure out how you could move an entire massive defense enterprise forward fast and with urgency. That's one bureaucratic challenge and sort of just even understanding our sort of bureaucracy is a big problem. But the other one is the net assessment you're talking about, which is we're in a dynamic race here with China that sees itself essentially trying to fund many Ma Manhattan projects, uh, you know, for China. Um, and in fact, three 
uh, People's Liberation Army officers attached with the Academy of Military Sciences in the summer put out a very interesting uh, sort of uh, analysis looking at 450 U.S. policy reports and documents. So that's how much we've been talking about getting ahead with advanced technology and quantum and AI. They're studying what we've actually done, and then they've recommended specific steps for them to leapfrog by changing lanes, as they say, you know, creating a new talent pool of, of sort of scientists, um, elevating uh, the semiconductor chip capacity inside China, uh, looking for industrial software. Whether they can succeed in those things is another matter. And that's where uh, a fine understanding of uh, China's challenges, uh, choke points, bottlenecks, um, bureaucratic infighting, corruption, economic slowdown, demographics, these become a very important sort of part of the analysis to understand that China is not going to get all of its way. It doesn't have this sort of unimpeded path forward. It has a hope. It has aspirations. But those aspirations right now outstrip uh, their ability to deliver, I believe, as well. Let me uh, take you to uh, some of the other, uh, you know, Chinese activities, right? I mean, it, it has been uh, the swarming toward uh, the Taiwanese coast is something that's continuing, uh, raising uh, tensions. Uh, Taiwan's leader, as you discussed last week, wrote a compelling essay saying that the world really should be siding with Taiwan as this is a battle of uh, democracy against authoritarianism. Great messaging from Tsai Ing-wen, you know, at a, at a very important time when the president is saying uh, the same sort of things. We have four aircraft carriers uh, in the region, two American, one Japanese, and of course, HMS Queen Elizabeth, that actually transited the Taiwan Strait uh, two weeks ago, driving Beijing absolutely bananas. Then you have the fishing fleet uh, right uh, off of Matsu. I think people uh, may forget sometimes that the, the Taiwan has islands six miles off the mainland coast, which Beijing also has been putting under uh, unremitting, unrelenting pressure. Uh, talk to us about the military dynamic and how it's evolving in the region, uh, because we obviously had the USS Connecticut collision, no news on that. Then, of course, we had the unfortunate disclosure that somebody involved in the American submarine program was trying to sell secrets to a foreign uh, power. Um, you know, talk to us about the uh, sort of what China has been up to and what our allies have been up to uh, in the Pacific, because this is a minute by minute a game, and we are a long way off. And unless you're paying very close attention, you might miss some of this stuff. Well, the Chinese military maneuvers have been active. I mean, after the 149 aircraft flew in about five days in the air defense identification zone of Taiwan, they followed it up with an amphibious exercise in Fujian uh, opposite Taiwan um, to show that they could, uh, at least they're working on an amphibious landing, or at least they want people to think that they're working on it and serious about it. Uh, they're now exercising a naval uh, sort of platforms with the Russians. Um, and uh, most interesting part of that is that in, in the Sea of Japan, they're, they're claiming that the threat is uh, the quadrilateral security dialogue partners of Japan, the United States, Australia, and India, even though that's a non-defense agreement, mostly, even though it deals with some broad security issues. Um, but they also call the threat AUKUS, the Australia-UK uh, United States deal that uh, also talks about building a fleet of uh, SSNs, of nuclear-powered submarines for Australia in the long term. Um, you know, and so they're using those essentially as just uh, whipping boys to try to uh, whip up support inside China, as Xi Jinping thinks about his party congress next year, but also in the region to make it very difficult for allies and partners in the region to sort of be fully on board with the U.S. policy. Um, this, is, this is the strategy of China, which is they want to essentially 
gain sea control over time so that they can control the seas around China, the near seas, but also the choke points, the vital choke points throughout the Indo-Pacific. Um, and the United States is not able to muster enough naval and air power to do that um, with enough lethality to threaten to say to sink Chinese ships, then they feel like they'll be able to convince uh, allies and partners to, to go along with China, to bandwagon with them and to, to give up hope, and especially around Taiwan. So this is a psychological game, but it has potential, growing potential for military confrontation as we go forward this decade and in the next. And it's that long-term competition that we are going to need the high technology in, but it's the near-term competition in this decade that we're going to need real operational capabilities, real concepts with real allies and partners. And that's why working with Japan and Japan's new government, um, Prime Minister Kishida, who has a major election, but he's expected, his party's expected to at least have a simple majority afterward. You know, the, the Liberal Democratic Party policy platform is calling for doubling defense spending. Now, I don't expect that to happen soon, but the trajectory is it's going to go up. I think that the ties with India are going to grow. The ties with Australia are now locked in for longer term. Now we, we have to figure out how we can bolster our military uh, sort of agreements and deterrence with our trade and economic policies as well. And there are some openings there, including through the quadrilateral security dialogue. China doesn't like that. They're trying to nip this in the bud and trying to be the leader on democracy, on the leader on sort of uh, trade and the leader uh, even when it comes to uh, sort of the seas around, around China. So um, this is a major challenge for the United States. China's taking it very seriously. We need to be focused on a strategic response for this decade and the decades to come. Uh, I should also point out, right, that he did uh, renounce uh, Abenomics, which uh, was kind of an uh, an, an interesting statement uh, to make. Um, very briefly, and I want to use this as a bridge, uh, Dove, you're next to bring uh, Europe into the conversation. Are you concerned, Patrick, that given how things are heating up, that the Chinese could miscalculate to look at U.S. capabilities and find them somehow, like, you know, draw to a conclusion I could actually take them if I go sooner than later, right? I mean, I know we've talked about this a little bit, but I mean, each passing week makes me think that the the, the Chinese at no level are backing off. In fact, are, are more apt to sort of slam down on the accelerator. And again, right, the kind of statements that she makes are not just for domestic consumption, they're for global consumption as well. Do, do you, is there anything in Chinese literature that suggests that the tone is changing? And getting harder in the, you know, or do you think that deterrence are, are, is our ability getting better to deter or worse, I suppose? Deterrence is eroding. I mean, I think that is a, an assumption that uh, I would support. Uh, that is true. I think confidence inside China, um, even though there's underlying doubts as well, and we need to prey upon those doubts and we need to continue to sow doubts. I think you're right. There is a window here for Xi Jinping, and he's extremely confident, um, at least on the surface. And it, and if he has to maintain that expectation of confidence for all of China, then that could lead him to do actions that may not seem rational in the bigger picture, because they, they would entail a major risk of escalation. But at the same time, he may think that he can really get away with it, be a fait accompli, it's over, it's a short, uh, you know, sharp war. Uh, and he's achieved his ambition. He's, he's knocked America out psychologically from the Indo-Pacific, and that changes things fundamentally. I think from the United States perspective and working with allies and partners, we're also looking for these things that will change the calculations of Xi Jinping and of the Chinese leadership. 
and things like AUKUS and that SSN deal is more, even though that's a long-term deal, that's the beginning along with the quad. And those are the two things they just criticized in the Russian Chinese naval exercise. It seems to me those do get to Xi Jinping. He does notice those. And so, you know, we have to be, make sure that they're real and we deliver on them because you're right. The danger is we actually incentivize some um, violent action on his part in the short term. Dove, I want to use this as an opportunity to bring you into the conversation and link what we're uh, seeing in Asia to what we're seeing uh, in in Europe. Right. Uh, Pandora Papers helped uh, Babish uh, get uh, kicked out of office. Uh, Very positive. But that's only the Czech Republic. uh, Right. Authoritarians are still firmly in power, whether in Warsaw or in uh, Budapest. Talk to us a little bit about how you connect Asia over over to Europe and how we need to think about this development. Well, basically, the the challenge for the United States is to convince our European allies that the security threat to them uh, in Asia does affect them and offsets the so-called economic benefits they think they're going to get from China. And that means, on the one hand, uh, a much more uh, aggressive and ambitious approach to economic relations with Europe. Uh, the, uh, the 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 tra- the trade partnership uh, with Europe that Trump killed uh, needs to be revived. Um, the TTP in in uh, Asia needs to be revived. Trump uh, basically killed that too. But more than that, uh, it seems that first of all, China notices that U- the UK and Japan have deepened their relationship, uh, probably. It's as deep as it's ever been since the Anglo-Japanese alliance in the early 1900s. So the UK is is definitely moving in, not just with Queen Elizabeth, but uh, across the board, it seems to me. Secondly, um, one has to think about cooperation on technology in a far more deeper and expanded way. And I'll give you an example why. you know, if the Australians are not going to get a nuclear submarine for 40 odd years, uh, they're going to have to modernize the Collins class, the conventional submarine that they've got. Well, the Swedes have a part of that Collins class. And it seems to me that given Swedish high technology, and by the way, Finnish as well, and Norwegian as well, we can bring them in, not to the submarine part, purely of the AUKUS agreement, but the larger high technology cooperation part. Because at the end of the day, whether it's the French who have two and a, two odd million citizens in the uh, Indo-Pacific or the Brits who have clear interests in the Pacific and, and the same with many of the other European countries, they can contribute to a, what Patrick's been talking about, this much larger capability uh, that goes beyond just how many surface ships you you put through the South China Sea, but pooling our technology so that we are ahead of the Chinese. And that will worry the Chinese, I think, quite a bit. One other approach that the British have just taken, uh, they've announced this week, uh, and I wrote about it in the Hill today, that they're going to invest about a billion pounds uh, in ports in Africa, together with the UAE, by the way, with defense ports. And they've made it very clear that this is to offset Chinese influence in Africa. That's not going to make Beijing happy either. And so there are lots and lots of economic, high technology ways of pooling of resources so that the Chinese recognize that they're not just going to take on the United States. And I totally agree with Patrick. This could happen much sooner for another reason. And we talked about this. The Chinese real estate companies are in trouble. The Chinese banking system, which she has criticized, has based its assets 
on those real estate companies. And remember, the whole Chinese deal has always been with the people. We'll give you a better economic life. We run the politics and security. Well, if they're not giving them a better economic life and if they have power outages and if there is an energy problem, the price of coal is going all the way up and so on and so forth. That's an incentive for Xi to uh, basically distract his people with something aggressive. So I totally agree with Patrick. This could happen sooner rather than later. And that has always been my big concern that the minute they calculate that we are not moving fast enough to improve our deterrence, uh, it becomes problematic. I have to say, I asked that question uh, two years ago uh, to Army Chief of Staff Jim McConville. Check out our interview uh, with the Army's 40th uh, Chief of Staff. Uh, it was on Wednesday's program uh, where he addressed that. And he feels that we are moving the needle in terms of capabilities we're fielding actions we're taking that should serve as a deterrent. It was interesting. Uh, And Steve, I want to go to you. You're a former soldier uh, in our midst. Uh, You were actually served on the Fulda Gap. Uh, You and I have talked about that experience many times and how it was such a rapid, you know, you felt like you were in some kind of incubator and everybody was learning lessons, sharing it institutionally as the institution itself moved uh, sort of uh, quickly. What I thought was interesting and, and laudatory for the United States Army over this this time was the breadth, the speed, the nuance with which Army leadership was looking at it. They weren't just looking at an only Pacific strategy. They were talking about building up capabilities uh, in uh, Europe, for example, and sharpening the great power warfighting game. From your perspective, what were some of the lessons that you learned as a young officer at the very peak of the Cold War on the border in the Fulda Gap um, that you think are most applicable today as the United States Army tries to change, change fast, because when the army gets moving, man, it's a pretty impressive thing to see how quickly the organization falls in line and puts its shoulder to a problem. Well, I was reminded uh, both by your interview with him and also his remarks to the AUSA conference, uh, General McConville, uh, about about the, uh, the what he called the, the signature systems that he is putting out into the hands of the regular army um, to to experiment with. I, I was reminded of of. The, the sense that I had in the mid 80s, uh, right? So when all of the Reagan buildup uh, systems were day over day over day, M1s, M2s, Apaches, Black Ops were rolling in and we were figuring out how to actually implement the airland battle doctrine, this, this, this new way of fighting. And it was, it, it felt exciting. It felt like, like as a Lieutenant, I was implicated in, in, in a, in a big change in the army uh, that was, was running all the way from the top of the organization down to my little platoon. Um, I, I, I thought about that when, when I, when I listened to General McConville this week, and I can only say that um, the less, the lesson I took from it, uh, which is to your question, is that um, I think that that is that is a, a method by which to implement big changes. Is don't just cook them up and then issue them on pieces of paper, but put new systems out into the hands of operators and uh, give you know major generals and colonels the chance to to work with them and figure out the actual implementation of bigger concepts of operation um, in their fields of uh, uh, that they're trying to defend or attack. Um, I should point out, right? You mentioned the big uh, four of the big five. The last one was the MLRS system, which was a game changing yep. uh, r- rocket system that certainly uh, helped uh, focus. Uh, the attention of another artillery-loving power, right? The Soviet Union and Russia still uh, still loves artillery, boy. Uh, king of battle. Um, 
uh, let me uh, very briefly uh, go to Dove. Uh, we've got a little bit of real estate I'd like to try to uh, cover quickly. Uh, Patrick, is there anything you wanted to add to this uh, in terms of uh, maybe the army role in the Pacific, right? I mean, that's something that's being debated and was being debated. I just want to give you uh, a word whether, you know, how you grade the army's uh, plans, right? We've heard from folks who say they have a message, they're not selling it well. And there are some even very good army friends of mine who think that the army is not getting it as right as they could, in part because of the army's sort of congenital sense of the centrality of itself in 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 uh, in the Pacific and and that the army may not be as central, for example. But just wanted to get your sense uh, on on how you sort of perceive the U.S. Army's Pacific strategy before I go to Dove so we can round out the show. Go ahead. Well, the two opportunities for the army uh, are first that large ground forces continue to be the dominant military and often political institution within a lot of Asian countries. So uh, we need armies to be able to talk to other armies and influence them. And secondly, they've been obviously uh, potentially able to play a role in distributed lethality, but that's going to take real estate. And we don't have real estate in Southeast Asia where we really need it other than potentially uh, the Philippines uh, at the moment. And that's problematic other than Guam and uh, territories that are related to the U.S. Um, so the army does have a role to play, but it has—it's um, not the key player uh, when we have to think about all domains. Dove, uh, let me uh, go to you. Um, a lot of news uh, going on. Israel making an about face. Uh, Israeli forces striking Palmyra in uh, uh, Syria, and then of course we have the deadly suicide blast now week on week. Uh, this time in Kandahar instead of uh, Kabul. Uh, you know, walk us through all uh, three of these and uh, how it is we should be thinking about it all. Okay, very briefly, um, on the first one, on the, on the about face, it, basically, the, the Israelis have made a very, I think, clever calculation. The new president of, of Iran, Raisi, has never been a fan of this agreement. Uh, and our own people, uh, Washington, are becoming much more despondent about whether this is going to happen. And they're talking about two other options. Uh, one is some kind of new agreement with the Iranians. The other is just it ain't going to happen at all. From an Israeli perspective, both of those are a lot better than the deal that's that they're trying to revive, they being the United States, uh, because if it's a new deal, then the Israelis, given that they have a much friendlier face toward Washington than they did when Netanyahu was, was prime minister, might give them an ability to influence what that deal might look like. And of course, if there's no deal at all, then they may be even happier still. So it's a smart move on their part. They're not going to stand in the way. They're just going to watch how things happen. Uh, and uh, they have a shot at, at somehow improving the uh, situation from what it was when the uh, uh, original Iran deal was put together. Uh, on the airstrike, uh, the strike took place uh, near Homs. Uh, obviously, it, it hit uh, Iranian-backed uh, militia. Four people are now dead. The original word was one. Now it looks like it's four. And the militias are screaming for revenge. And the Israelis, of course, have, will not confirm or deny. Uh, this is just part of the ongoing war with Iran uh, just below the surface, uh, more than uh, just a gray zone. It, but it's a gray zone plus, And it's going to go on, uh, whether it'll be airstrikes, whether, whether it'll be cyber strikes. Um, when you have a new hardline president in Tehran, uh, you can't expect anything less. And finally, in Afghanistan, it, it looks really like ISIS and the Taliban are at war with each other. 
and frankly, as long as they remain at war with each other, it's going to be much harder for ISIS or any other terrorist group to attack anybody outside Afghanistan. Um, so in a way, I would say a plague on both your houses. <laughs> One thing which I thought was uh, fascinating is that Naftali Bennett threw uh, Bibi Netanyahu and Donald Trump under the bus saying, look, you know, we advocated for breaking this agreement and it was a mistake because now the Iranians have accelerated their nuclear program. I believe we heard something similar from Benny Gantz, the uh, former Ramat Khal, the chief of the uh, IDF, who's now a uh, defense minister, who said that Israel maintains the right to defend, it, defend itself uh, and to deter uh, as necessary. But I thought that throwing under the bus thing was interesting. Well, especially, you- if, especially if you want to be in the Democrats' good graces. Uh, exactly. Uh, that was it was a strategic uh, uh, underbussing, as we might call. Uh, and then um, do you think what do you think is next between a deal between the United States and the Taliban? Obviously, talks are continuing. We have a similar interest in wanting to fight ISIS. Uh, the Taliban continue to let people leave uh, the country. Talk to us about where this agreement goes next, because the EU uh, is getting close to, uh, you know, has, has pledged, I think, a billion plus uh, euros in aid, which which also is uh, is an interesting development. Well, well, the challenge for the administration is they've talked about, uh, you know, human rights and women's rights and minority rights. And of course, you cut a deal with the Taliban after what the Taliban has already been doing. Uh, it doesn't look terribly good. So the real issue is, does real politique win out as it seems to be winning out in Europe uh, or does it not? And my bet is that it will. Uh, we'll reach some kind of understanding with the Taliban. Maybe we won't give them money, but uh, they'll allow humanitarian assistance to the people, which, of course, will strengthen their hand as well. We'll look the other way as they persecute minorities and, per- and make it difficult for women to uh, advance. Um, but uh, we'll be able to work together with them to go after ISIS. So uh, I do think realpolitik is going to be the way that we go. And uh, 30 seconds or so left in the program. Patrick, uh, Steve, anything else on your minds before we close the program out? Well, it's worth noting that Kim Jong-un's major military exposition speech, that is where he gave a speech about uh, looking at war as the big problem, not necessarily the United States or any other country, while we can not take that at face value exactly, it does look like, while he wants his nuclear weapons, he's not going to give them up. He wants sanctions relief. He's willing to start talking potentially, but whether he's willing to start giving anything is maybe more doubtful. Steve? No news is good news uh, on Capitol Hill right now, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, the, the quietude I, fi- I find heartening. And uh, last, uh, other AUSA thoughts uh, on your mind as, as somebody who was paying attention to what was going on? Um, I, I will say, I don't know if it was coordinated, but it turned out effective the way the Army branded itself at AUSA. The words I wrote down were uh, to build a software-enabled hardware that is easy to upgrade and integrate, right? That was in my summation uh, of, of so much of what got branded at AUSA. And that's a good thing for, and for this army, the army to do is start branding itself as a software system, you know, a, a service that is trying to generate software enabled hardware that is easy to upgrade and integrate. That was the theme throughout. And I liked um, it. And I have to say, uh, kudos to you for uh, hitting uh, the bullseye on that. What I found very, very impressive is the lengths to which the army is going to slim down uh, supply chains, uh, you know, make weapons easier to support, and how everybody has sort of gotten the religion. We need open architectures, move fast, get an earlier block, spiral that up, 
but if you do it in an open architecture way with reliable uh, hardware that's actually more common across the force, uh, guess what, right? Lesson number one of armies, reduce your supply chains because you've already got to move uh, literally mountains uh, in order to, uh, to deliver. And uh, you know, over the coming weeks, we're going to be rolling out our uh, series of interviews uh, with a lot of other thoughtful army leaders, including on uh, something as important as uh, logistics. Guys, thanks very much again. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a terrific weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.